This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Everyone's talking about those new findings in the UK that how the COVID-19 vaccines are providing a high level of protection against infection and illness after a single dose. I mean, there's implications of this. There are, but it's great news that, you know, look, this is happening in real time. We've talked about this a lot. Totally. These vaccines are used under emergency use authorization. It means they haven't been tested in the same way that all vaccines are usually tested over a years long period. So we are learning things now that we didn't know yet. Right. The data sets continue to come out. So let's get into it with Dr. Sandro Galea. He's back with us, Dean and Professor of Boston University School of Public Health, author of the upcoming book, The Contagion Next Time, that is due out in the fall. Dr. Galea, so nice to have you back with us. Um, How are you? I'm well, Carol. Thank you for having me. Good to hear from you again. Well, it's great to hear from you as well. So tell us about this news out of the UK. And I think there's, you know, what this might mean in terms of asymptomatic infection and, you know, transmission of COVID. I mean, these are things that are that are coming out. Tell us about the significance of this or what you see maybe as a significance. Yeah, the vaccine has been consistently remarkable, really, vaccine news. I mean, we have, uh, we shouldn't forget as a world that we have achieved something extraordinary in terms of vaccines available in such a short period of time. The latest news shows that a single dose of the vaccine is highly efficacious in terms of preventing symptomatic COVID, but also, I'll get to in a second, preventing severe COVID. And that really makes a difference, right? Because we have been we have been accounting for vaccination rates, assuming that everybody's getting two vaccines. But if we can have a lot of people getting one vaccine, that will allow us to do things much faster. On the Pfizer vaccine front, news also came out that the Pfizer vaccine can be kept in a regular freezer. It doesn't have to be a minus 80 freezer, which from a supply chain point of view makes a big difference. So this really creates opportunities for national governments to stretch the vaccine much further than we have done so far, because, of course, as you know, our limitation has been the manufacturing, that uh, we have not been able to manufacture and provide as many vaccines as we need to, to vaccinate everybody as quickly as possible. So this is really all good. And Mm -hmm. you you also, Carol, mentioned the variants, and uh, the data are that this vaccine appears to be efficacious as well against the UK variant. Now, there's still some questions about the South African variant. Right. uh, But this is all this is all positive. You know, so much of the, the early data that we see come from countries using the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, but we don't see many of these early results showing what's going on with the Moderna vaccine, which is the vaccine that so many Americans uh, have been getting. Should we expect that we'd see similar results because they're both mRNA vaccines? I think so. I think uh, I think you can for a variety of reasons. One is the very similar mechanism, as you say, uh, and and the data that we do have actually show that the two work very similarly. We didn't talk in the first uh, round about severe COVID. So what's the most amazing thing about these vaccines is that they have essentially reduced severe COVID dramatically, even much more dramatic than symptomatic COVID. And ultimately, that's what we want, right? Ultimately, we do not want COVID to be severe. So all the vaccine trials out there, there really has not been a single 
deaths from COVID in anybody who receives vaccine. And that's in all the five vaccines that have been, um, whose trials, phase three trials have been there so far. So all these vaccines really are highly effective against reducing what we want them to reduce, which is severe COVID. Right. And that's what it, it ultimately is about. Do you have um, confidence by spring, by summer, that we will have herd immunity? Well, confidence is a tough thing to come by about things like that these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I think I think the the best models out there, including the CDC's own models, suggest that we are we will be getting towards to, towards enough immunity that essentially reduces rapid transmission. I'm avoiding the term herd immunity because it's become a bit of a loaded term. Yeah. Um, by by summer. Now, whether or not that means by the end of spring, beginning of summer, or by middle of summer, late summer. I think that's very hard to say. I think the big caveat that everybody says when you think about this, and all the good models say correctly, is that that assumes the transmissibility of the virus as it is now, which means that doesn't take into account Mm. if any of the variants take over and they're much more transmissible, because, of course, that changes the whole formula. You were hesitant about using the word herd immunity. Tell me why. Well, I think that term, like many other terms, as we've discussed on the show before, has become politicized. It, it has mm-hmm. somehow, I mean, it, it, it's a term that has been used in um, infectious disease epidemiology for a long time, simply to mean a, uh, when you have a population where there are not enough people who are susceptible to the disease, that it stops transmission. But the term has, has acquired these political undertones of, well, are we letting people get the disease intentionally, which obviously is not what it means. I mean, what, all it means is you don't have enough people who are susceptible and the virus stops transmitting. Hey, Dr. Galea, um, look, these vaccines have been out for, for more than two months, at least here in the U.S. More and more people are getting vaccinated. Don't you think that people can start to act differently after they've been vaccinated, given how effective these vaccines are? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And, and this has been, I think, uh, controversial lately. You know, I think what we're seeing is a lag in our guidance and in our systems that are have been put in place to protect us with the reality of a post-vaccination world. And, uh, and you've seen some, some more and more people writing, well, you know, if people are vaccinated, is it not reasonable that once you're vaccinated, you can expect to re-enter the world much more fully? The right. short answer is yes, absolutely. The short answer is yes, huh. absolutely. The problem is, the problem is, the problem is that we don't have enough people vaccinated yet to be able to say definitively. All right. Going to leave it there. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Dr. Sandra Galea, Dean at the Boston University School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Boston. That was an important point you made. Yeah, it's a big question that so many of my friends have right now, right? It's Mm -hmm. like our parents are getting vaccinated. When are we going to be able to see them? When can our kids see their grandparents? Well, I'm just concerned about can you get the vaccine but still transmit COVID. It's really key. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. This story, it is still among Bloomberg Business Week, or I should say, this is still among the most read on the Bloomberg Terminal. And it's by Bloomberg Business Week feature writer and New York Times bestselling author Ashley Vance. He wrote this story. He's also host of Hello World and author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. He's on the phone from Palo Alto, California. He joins us along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. And it's about this 27 year old who actually, you know, living at home with your parents, Joel, can be a good thing yeah and and ashley um i thought did this amazing job uh explaining about this 27 year old who became a COVID 19 data superstar and and ashley why don't you just take us away here what's his story and, and what's so significant about what he what he's done 
Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting story that kind of pulled me back to the early days of the, the pandemic. But there, there's this data scientist, his name is Yu Yang Gu. And like you mentioned, he's, he's, he was 26 at the time. He's 27 now. But, you know, if you go back to March and April of, of 2020, we were getting all these, these forecasts for how bad COVID might end up being. And, and there was Imperial College in London that was putting out a prominent forecast and IHME, which is an institute based in Seattle. And these, these forecasts were all over the place. One group said, you know, the U.S. alone might see 2 million deaths by the summer. IHME said 60,000 deaths and the, the pandemic was going to wind down quickly. And so this, this kid saw these models and the figures all over the place. And he decided to get into forecasting deaths on his own. And he turned out to have pretty much the most accurate forecast um, all the way up through about November. All right. So, Ashley, how did Goo do it? What what it were his data points? I mean, this is a guy who understands algorithms and analytic modelings. Yeah, there's kind of two things to it. I mean, one is he looked at the the models that were out there, and he said these, even though these people were professionals, and he had no background in this field at all, he said, you know, they're putting too many things in their models. So I'm going to keep mine really simple. I am just going to look at, at the death figures being reported by governments and, and then predict future deaths from that. And then he had a skill at machine learning software and, and basically AI algorithms. And so he applied that to his figures to, to constantly tune them over time. When the real death figures would arrive, he would compare that to his forecast. And so he kept tuning his model. So he kind of kept it simple in some ways, but then added this new sophistication that some other people were not using. What can we learn about modeling here? Considering that there were so many professional organizations, Ashley, got, that, that didn't get this right, but this then 26-year-old was able to do this much more accurately. Yeah, I, I, mean, I guess there were a couple of things I picked up from my interviews. You know, one is that I was surprised that sort of this, this field wasn't you know, <laughs> already dialed in and, and that there were sort of like tried and true things that we we knew you could go to. And, and so, you know, his argument and the argument that some other people made to me is that is that academics, professors, people at some of these institutes, they tend to try and make their models more sophisticated and nuanced by adding complexity because they're kind of trying to show off and, and do something new that their peers aren't doing. And, and so, you know, he went the simple route. It was like, no, this is, this is actually how you get closer to the truth. And the other thing is that, you know, we've seen over time that, the individual models really do not work as well as taking 20, 30, 40 models together, blending them, and then looking at what that blended model tells you. And so, you know, a big takeaway was the next time there's a health crisis, you don't want to place too much stock maybe in these, these individual models that come out in the first week or two weeks of the crisis. You, hopefully, we'd be in a better situation where there's, there's numerous models right from the get-go that we can kind of blend together and, and get something closer to the truth. So what, what's Goo uh, doing now, and, and what, what, does he, uh, what does he think he'll crack next? It seems like, you know, this kind of modeling, uh, you know, you go work at a hedge fund and make uh, billions of dollars. Is that, what, is that yeah. what's in the store? Well, this is the funny, I mean, it's the interesting part of the story. I mean, he was, he was in finance. He was doing trading forecasts, and then right Right when the pandemic started, right before it started, he had decided to 
do a startup with a buddy. He was going to get into sports analytics. He was pretty cagey about telling me exactly what it was. It sounded like some sort of like uh, maybe sports betting thing or something like that. And then, you know, he volunteered his time dur- during these these death forecasts and and has been sucked into the public health world. And now he's you know he's getting recruited by um, all kinds of folks. And I think he's, he's kind of like changed the course of his life. I think he wants to get into public health now. He's, he's so sort of, uh, he's kind of averse to all the politics and the money that's in it. He just wants to be a pure, pure data driven guy. Well, but what actually has happened to his data sets now? Cause from what I understand from your story, he kind of stopped, right? Yeah. Well, he stopped the, the death forecast around October, November, because everybody's numbers started to kind of coalesce around a pretty similar place. Now he's forecasting um, basically kind of herd immunity. He's looking at, at mm-hmm. the vaccination rate, the, you know, how many people have actually caught COVID. He thinks a lot more people have caught it than, than sort of the official numbers report. And so he's trying to model out kind of where we might end up. And so for the U.S., you know, herd immunity is kind of like a sort of a vague, nobody knows exactly what the right number is on that. But, you know, he has us in the U.S., about 65% of the population would either have the vaccine or have already caught um, the virus and, and be approaching something like herd immunity by June. All right, we'll timestamp it. Yeah. <laughs> it's impressive. Was he living in the parents' basement? That's what we all, we just want to know when he did this. Yeah, he was in, he was in Santa Clara, so I live out here in Silicon Valley. We don't really have basements, but definitely a living room <laughs> at least, or, or like a side room. Um, and yeah, so he was staying with his parents during during the bulk of it. He, he's moved so now. Great. He's moved to New York. All right. Next chapter. Well, we look forward to see what more on that next chapter. Ashley, thank you so much. Ashley Vance, features writer at Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone from Palo Alto, along with Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, on the remote access from Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. It's brought to you by SEI with an operating platform designed to support all major asset classes, diverse strategies, and investment vehicles. SEI is redefining wealth management. Learn more at seic.com slash IMS. Well, there are, Tim, a couple of provocative columns on China to tell you about today. One, about China's plan for a cashless society and the goal and implications of such. That's something to come. And then something that's already here, China's massive and impressive infrastructure and how it's really time for the U.S. to get worked up about it. I love these columns, thought-provoking. And let's get into it with Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director Andy Brown. He writes about both. He is on the phone in our New York City Bureau. Andy, I know you're just around the corner, one floor down but we're all socially distancing. Uh, Great columns. And I have to say, these two stories remind me in many ways how China is way ahead of the U.S. and the rest of the world on so much already. Exactly. I mean, these blackouts in Texas illustrate the perilous state of U.S. infrastructure. And it's not just the power grid. Uh, It's the transportation network. It's highways. It's railways. It's airports. It's telecommunications networks. And, and, And in all these areas, one can't help but compare and contrast with China, which is 
which is streets ahead. I mean, this is this is a national. This has risen to the level, I think, of a national security threat for the United States. I mean, it goes to the heart of economic competitiveness, military readiness, climate change resilience, innovation capacity. Um, you know, you you you've got a situation now where China has rolled out a five G network, and America hasn't really got started. And it's giving China a jump on all of the industries of the future, from smart cities, advanced manufacturing, uh, uh, autonomous vehicles, and, and so on and so forth. This is the way to compete with China, as Joe Biden is trying to say, is we need to invest in infrastructure or China is going to come and eat our lunch. And actually, in area after area, China has already eaten America's lunch. So what's the way to do this in Washington, where at this point, many Republicans will not even acknowledge that there was a free and fair election that elected Joe Biden? What I'm saying is there is not broad agreement across the challenges that America faces or perhaps the solutions to those challenges. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, 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 is the first step is to recognize the threat. Um, you know, and, and America has been here before. Uh, you know, back in 1957, there was this Sputnik moment, right, where you know, Russia launches this satellite that, you know, that, that uh, around, around the, the, the Earth. And suddenly the Eisenhower administration freaks out and realizes that Russia is leaving America behind when it comes to space. And, and he invests, he launches NASA, he makes massive investments in science and technology, which ultimately give rise to Silicon Valley and spawn the likes of Facebook and Google and, and, and so on. The danger now, as Eric Schmidt pointed out in a, in a, in a piece just the other day in the Financial Times, you know, is, is that the next uh, tech giants and the products and the services that they produce are not going to be American. They're going to be Chinese. Right. And of course, Eric Schmidt, the former chief of Google. Andy, you know what? Why aren't we scared enough as Americans in terms of how advanced China is getting on a lot of things? And they are very clear about their mission, their long-term planning to be much more advanced on a lot of sophisticated areas and industries. It's, it's a really good question, and, and, and maybe it, it's because there wasn't this one big dramatic event like, you know, the launch of, of Sputnik, that this has really crept up on, uh, on America. I mean, I lived there for, for, for more than 20 years and, and saw this happen. I mean, the build-out of their high-speed rail network was phenomenal. I mean, they now have the most extensive high-speed network in the world. In fact, it's, it's longer than the rest of the world's network combined. And by the way, it's about to double again by 2035, and, 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 and all of this was accomplished in a decade. You know, I mean, Joe Biden was, was talking to senators the other day and was saying, you know, we, we need to pay attention to, to China's railway network. You know, well, yes, you know, he's, he's a guy that used to travel every day on a train. Amtrak Joe. <laughs> Amtrak Joe between Delaware and Washington, D.C. It took him 90 minutes. If he'd sat on a similar length tra- train, uh, you know, it's about 100 miles. 100 miles in China, you do that in, in half the time. You do it's it in amazing. 45 minutes, and it, and it, and it works like clockwork. Yeah. Hey, Andy, I was in Shanghai a couple of years ago uh, with graduate school classmates, and we were there on a school trip, and some classmates of mine went to buy something in the mall that was close to our hotel. They had cash and credit cards. They couldn't buy something because they didn't, hadn't downloaded the app that so many people in China use to actually pay for something. So they ended up coming back empty-handed. What's China doing by eliminating cash? 
Right. So, well, yeah, exactly. So for a, lo- a long time, basically, there was no need uh, to carry cash at all. When I when I would go out in Shanghai, I mean, it didn't occur to me to to, to take to take notes. I mean, you of course you it's everything is, is swiping your barcode, whatever whatever it is you're you're you're, you're buying. What they're now doing is launching an in an, 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 a a digital currency. They're going to do away with notes. All together, and China invented the banknote. By the way, about 1500, 1500 years ago, it was one of the things that Marco Polo marvelled about when he travelled to China in the 13th century. They're going to get rid of notes. They're going to get rid of coins. It's going to be a digital currency, and not, by the way, the Bitcoin that that we've been hearing about today. I mean, this this is not your distributed ledger, your anonymized transaction. This is a central bank issued currency, which is going to give the central bank absolute visibility into every transaction in China, every donation, every trade. The state is going to be in your wallet. This is big brother like you've never had it before. It's fascinating. And what's interesting is I feel like China always wants to be much more part of kind of the system, but I feel like this will seclude them potentially, Andy, and just got about 25 seconds. Yeah, they want it. They, they, of course, they want to displace the dollar. They want mm-hmm. to have a global currency. Nobody wants to use a digital currency overseas with 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 the knowledge that the Chinese state yeah. um, has absolute visibility, has eyes on it. I don't think so. I mean, so it, it'll work in China, but internationally, highly doubtful. Oh, it's fascinating. I want to do more on this. I love this story. And uh, Andy, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Andy Brown, he is Bloomberg New Economy Editorial Director. Check out his columns on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. We have to talk more about this one because I think um, that's a big deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. That kind of access by the government is amazing. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. Tim, I have to say, when I read this story over the weekend, the pictures, I had to look at them several times for it to register about what had happened. Everybody saw that video, I feel like at this point, of the engine on the Boeing 777 on fire just minutes after taking off from Denver International Airport. Right. And then pieces of it just in someone's yard. Like, it was just crazy. So let's get into it and find out what's the latest and what's going on. Uh, Let's get the latest from Julie Johnson, aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from Chicago. I want to mention that Boeing shares I know were higher uh, earlier, and I'll take a, a look at the trade. Raytheon, though, was seeing some pressure. Raytheon, of course, the owner of Pratt & Whitney. Julie, good to have you here. So where are we on this story? Well, um, the investigators are starting, you know, to dig into the, the root causes of this. And uh, the 777 uh, jets around the world, and there weren't that many of them uh, that had this particular engine on them, are, are all grounded right now. And uh, crews are, are taking a, a close look at the engines to see if there are other uh, cracking issues. How long do you anticipate some type of investigation such as this lasts? When will there be some sort of answer as to the cause of this engine failure and, and other scares in the past? Oh, it, you know, that's, that's a really good question. And these, um, you know, these investigations tend to take a long time. Uh, the FAA is just super thorough about, you know, examining causes. And, it, and you know, I should just add that right now it's very early on. Um, so it, it looks bad because there have been a couple of very similar incidents uh, with this engine and these uh, really old, um, very early 777 models. 
Um, but yeah, it's early days. Early days. So stay tuned, basically. <laughs> I mean, what are we waiting for now? Like what happens next? Well, I think, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see, um, you know, we'll have to wait for more details to come out from the FAA and from Pratt and Whitney, which is, you know, the Raytheon um, subsidiary that ma- made the engines. And, um, and so I don't know if you, you know, how, how deep you got into the rabbit hole uh, with this. I, you know, I spent a huge chunk of my weekend on Twitter looking at, you know, photos and videos. And what became apparent very early on uh, was that two fan blades had broken off. And um, so I think the FAA is going to take a really long, hard look at the, the way that these blades are inspected. And, um, and so Pratt and, you know, mechanics around the world need to get into, you know, the grain of the metal to look for very early signs of fatigue that aren't visible to the human eye. They use ultrasonic tools for this. It has been a very bad few years for Boeing, to, to put it mildly, with the 737 MAX disaster, the subsequent grounding of those planes. Um, what does this mean for Boeing, given that it's actually a relatively small number of planes that are affected and seems to be less of an issue with the plane and, and more of an issue with the Pratt & Whitney engine? Yes, and I think that's one of the reasons why we saw Boeing sell off this morning and then the market sort of take a little bit of a, you know, a, a deep breath. And so right now, I mean, this does not help Boeing. This really, this is not great for their reputation. The, the, the optics are horrendous. But in terms of financial liability, at this moment, it doesn't look like this is going to be an issue for Boeing. And um, we're, you know, we're talking a very small percentage of the global fleet that's affected and for Pratt, I've seen estimates that maybe, you know, it's a few few cents of earnings potentially hmm. clipped. I mean, but bottom line, Julie, and I should just update, uh, Boeing had traded up about 1.3%. It's now down about 1.4%. And shares of Raytheon, uh, owner of Pratt & Whitney, are down just under 1%. Um, who ultimately is responsible, though? Is it United and their force for checking on the planes? Um, I'm just trying to figure out where the fault might lie. Yeah, and that's going to be a great question for the, you know, for the FAA and NTSB as well. Now, I'm, I don't know if you'll remember, but back in 2018, another United jet was on its way to Hawaii and had uh, just a, you know, an mm-hmm. engine explode on the wing. And, um, and so the root cause looks to have been quite similar to what happened mm. on Saturday. And Pratt, at that point, was uh, was asked by the FAA to go in and, and inspect all of the fan blades um, on this particular type of engine. And so in very short order, mm-hmm. um, we had a Japan Airlines jet have an engine failure in December that was like this, and then yeah. the United plane on Saturday. So, so um, I think the FAA is going to be taking a close look at, at how Pratt uh, measured the damage. All right. We appreciate it. Julie, thank you so much. Julie Johnson, aerospace reporter at Bloomberg News. 
on the phone from Chicago, as I mentioned, Boeing down about 1.4%, Raytheon down just under 1%. Is it full? What? Well, you know, it's it's so interesting. These planes are designed to fly on one engine, but as Alan Levin told us on Quick Take earlier today, not when it's the aerodynamics change so, so significantly. Yeah, exactly. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, folks, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. Let's get to the drive to the close. James Chakmok is back with us, partner and portfolio analyst. He focuses on tech stocks. He knows this area so well at the asset management firm Clockwise Capital, joining us on the phone from Miami. So is it warm in Miami? Uh, it's a bit chilly today, oh, about okay. 70. Oh, oh, come on. That really hurts. <laughs> <laughs> You're a former New Yorker. You know, you got to miss this yes, February yes, weather, right? I'm quite spoiled, yeah. Well, yes. I, I don't know what winter's like. Anymore. <laughs> well, we had snow earlier. <laughs> I'll, be, uh, I'll be back. I'll be back. All right. So um, how are you? And how do you think the technology area is uh, doing? We saw a little bit of a pullback, some concerns once again. Valuation talk. How do you see it? How overpriced mm-hmm. are we? Uh, slightly. Um, mm. You know, we anticipated, you know, somewhat of a 5 to 10% pullback, um, you know, going into the recent kind of lows that uh, we've seen. Uh, so we have been raising cash, you know, in our fund to take advantage of any pullbacks that we do see. Because uh, right now, if you look at the broader market, it's trading about 23 times uh, earnings for 2021, you know, which is a little lofty by historical standards. But Kind of the way we look at the broader tech sector, you know, we still want to be heavily invested because these companies have market opportunities far bigger than we ever had before. They don't have the barriers on on, on uh, geography, on infrastructure, and ability to reach consumers. And, and those bigger opportunities should yield uh, bigger returns as we look out over the next couple of years. So we're going to be uh, tactical and surgical and opportunistic on, on pullbacks on the names we like. When do you think there will be a pullback, James? And and once there is one and you can deploy that cash, where is it going to go? Well, we're already seeing it, right? I mean, the NASDAQ was, what, down 2% today, 2.5%. You know, that's not a little, you know. So I think we're chipping away at it. I, I don't, we don't think it's going to be a prolonged one um, because of the fact that or it's going to be any degree of severity with what we saw last year because of the fact that, you know, these are real companies with real earnings. Yes. Some of the valuations are high, but at the same time, you know, these are the fastest-growing companies that we've seen and can grow into their valuation in a relatively quick uh, period, we think. And as far as where we're putting our money, kind of we put it in three buckets. One is what is the absolutely essential infrastructure? Those are companies like Amazon and Apple. What are the fastest-growing companies that are leveraging the cloud and that infrastructure? You know, that's companies like FinTech, like Square, and Affirm. You also like companies, more established ones like NVIDIA. And then you have third bucket, which is, which are the legacy companies that can benefit from added productivity in their manufacturing and, and really uh, taking advantage of right-sizing the companies after COVID. You know, those are companies like Whirlpool. Inter- Whirlpool? Mm-hmm. Whirlpool? 
Is that what you? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's not a, a traditional you know tech stock, um, but you know what we're looking for at the, in that third bucket is company the legacy companies that have the opportunity to improve their productivity uh, in, through improving their manufacturing capabilities huh. and also coming out of COVID in a much better margin profile than prior. Well, it's interesting because we I actually talked to the Whirlpool CEO a few months ago, and we, you know we talked a lot about consumer habits and how. You know, his thinking is like, listen, things are not going to change. Consumers are not going to change what they've been doing for the last year overnight and maybe not forever, you know, in terms of the focus mm-hmm. on home and so on and so forth. So um, it, it was interesting. And I wonder how much of that goes into your thinking about some of the names that you want to invest in right now. It, a lot, because, yeah. I mean, we really think that we will not go back to the way things were. And that's the way kind of we're looking at the world right now. Because what companies have noticed is, and, and, and employees and, and people in general have noticed that life does go on without having to go into the office every single day. And, and businesses are able to move forward and able to do so in a much more um, profitable manner, you know, when you don't have to pay for office space and mm-hmm. whatnot and being able to hire people from around the country. Um, if you're not limited to geography, and and um, kind of fixed cost, you know, you can still continue to grow your business and potentially even get more productivity out of your people since you won't have to commute and, and things of that nature. So, you know, we think that we will not go back to the way things were. So which companies will allow you uh, to help you as, as a company, as an individual, to better navigate this, this new life, you know, coming out of the pandemic? And we certainly think about businesses that we invest in that way. Hey, James, what do you think of, of Snap, uh, the company hitting $100 billion in market value? It's doubled in, in four months. I know this is a company that you followed very closely for years. What do you think how, mm-hmm. of how it's doing right now? It's remarkable. I mean, they've, they've come such a long way. And, and then, you know, initially I came out positive on the company when I was on the sell side giving recommendations on these stocks. But, um, you know, it took a while for them to gain their traction. And obviously you had Facebook copying them. But at the end of the day, the, the whole case behind it, and including companies like Pinterest and, and whatnot, but um, the case behind it was that you can. There's two ways to monetize that advertising. You know, you can either go super broad with a lot of users and do a lot of campaigns like that, or you can have a niche product with a very, very a higher engagement rate and monetize in that sense. And that is the direction that Snap went. And you know they have a they have a, a good user base, a growing user base, and and COVID has also benefited um, them um, from that standpoint. And uh, because of the ROIs that are improving on their tech platform, ad platform, you know that that's a company that has certainly seized on the opportunity that they originally had mm. um, following the IPO. I got two questions and I only have time for one, so I'm just going to go with it. Uh, we've got the Twilio okay. CFO coming on later on. Uh, this stock has been mm-hmm. on a tear this year, last year. Yep. 30 seconds, what would you ask him? Um, I would ask him on the, um, let's see, on the, the kind of the, the analytics and the, and the customer relationship management front. Kind of, you know, they made some acquisitions to, to boost uh, uh, in that regard, you mm-hmm. know, beyond just their communication capabilities, but also how do I improve the productivity in-house um, and uh, for, for the companies that are their customers and being able to interact with their customers and be smarter about how they interact with those customers. So it's more how are they lever- helping their customers leverage the data. Cool stuff. Um, 
I'll tell you the next question, the second question next time when you come back. <laughs> <laughs> you got to come back, James. Stay warm. Enjoy. James Chalkmock, partner and technology analyst over at Clockwise Capital, on the phone from a 70 degrees warmy, balmy <laughs> Miami. I'm a little bitter. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.